This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Here today, uh, very, very delighted to have another one of my bosses, my attendings here at Rush, Dr. Harold Deutsch, uh, one of our spine attendings, who I've just I've been trying to get him on the show for a long time to do this episode. It's something we've talked about a few times and talked about recording a few times, and finally, uh, we're sitting down to talk about what it's like to run a busy and productive spine clinic. Uh, Dr. Deutsch, welcome to the show. For our listeners who, who don't know you, who haven't met you, maybe uh, say hello and introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Arel Deutsch. I'm a neurosurgeon. I've been here at Rush for almost 20 years, um, specialized in spine surgery. Um, delighted to work with JP, who has been... Uh, a great resident so far and looking forward to his senior years of residency and more time in the operating room. Yeah, em- emphasis on the so far. <laughs> uh, well, so, so Dr. Deutsch, we, you know, at a recent journal club uh, a month or two ago, I, uh, I kind of cornered you and I asked you some aspects about your, your practice in clinic because here at Rush at least, unlike other places, on the junior end of residency, we don't spend a lot of time in clinic. We're mostly in the ICU, we're on the wards, we're in the operating room, and then when we get to more senior levels, that's when we start coming to clinic. And we've talked about changing that uh, structure in the residency here because particularly for spine, a lot of the most nuanced and high-level thinking part of it is not enacting the surgery, but deciding if someone needs surgery, what surgery that might be. And and, and that decision-making outside of emergencies and consults and things, that obviously all happens in the clinic. Um, so maybe to set the stage for the conversation today, uh, could you give us a, a brief overview and kind of a you know twenty thousand uh, mile view and what your clinic looks like? How many days a week? How many people you see? That sort of thing. Well, JP, first I want to correct you because I don't think the residents ever spend any time in clinic. <laughs> so uh, not as junior residents, not as senior residents, and you know it's it's an underestimated part of of training because really it's the key to success. I mean, if you had the proper skills for clinic, you would be successful regardless of how great you are at doing surgery. Mm. And if you don't, then you're going to be unsuccessful no matter how great a surgeon you are. Um, and, you know, for me, um, um, in spine, uh, we, we see more patients than brain tumor patients because it's a different field in the sense that, you know, if you see someone with a brain tumor, it's a decision to do surgery or not is not that complex. And you, you kind of know if someone's seeing you that they may need surgery. But spine, there's a lot more non-operative care, a lot more people that you see that maybe are not candidates for surgery or have other issues. That um, So you, you have to see more patients. And I see clinic about three days a week. Um, you know, they're not full days because it is very kind of strenuous uh, on your soul to some degree. So, you know, it's hard to do. And I may, in the past, maybe I have done this where I would be like, i doing clinic till 7 p.m., et cetera, late. Yeah. But now I, I typically do like a 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., although oftentimes it does run later in the add-ons and things like that. Um, but, you know, you have to see, the more patients you see, the more uh, likely you are to get patients. It's kind of like baseball. Like if you swing at more pitches, you're going to get more hits. Right. And, uh, you know, if you swing every time, every patient you see you do surgery on, you're going to strike out a lot. Uh-huh. 
Okay, and I know uh, Dr. Wang, who can't be with us today, we're fortunately recording in person, which is always a little bit more fun. I know he tends to do one big clinic day, kind of how, how you're talking about that other model where you just sun up to sundown and you just get it all out of the way one day a week. I think he, he does a, a smaller secondary day where he'll, he'll see a few more patients, but he tends to focus everybody on one day um, and he you know goes till the dead of the night. Um, kind of, I guess it sounds like you used to do that. Um, I wonder with the amount of patients you're seeing, you're talking about with your baseball analogy, how frequently you're swinging the bat, What's on average the hit rate for your clinic for our listeners meeting? Uh, what percentage of people roughly that you see in clinic, how many surgeries do you get out of that? Well, there's a whole theory about pre-screening patients yeah. before you see them. And a lot of my partners, um, they'll review the reports and MRIs and spend time looking at the patients and then deny a lot of patients I find that that's difficult to do for two reasons. One is it takes a lot of time to look at all these films, which you don't get paid for. So mm. uh, you're reviewing films, looking at charts, and then you say, no, I'm not going to see it. You don't get paid for that screening. Two, I feel like spine is a multifactorial kind of discipline where even the films may not be that remarkable, but the patient may have something and maybe you could help them. Maybe the films were unremarkable, but they had a peripheral nerve issue that was unrecognized or something else, or mm. maybe they have back problems, but really they have cervical myelopathy. So I prefer to see the patients, um, even if the films are not, you know, not, I don't know what's going to happen with, with the films. Um, but, you know, that said, I mean, hopefully people have had treatment and physical therapy and, and we do have, um, nurse practitioners or PAs that, that may see patients. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I feel like the hit rate is pretty high. I mean, the idea is that if you're coming to see a surgeon that you want to have surgery and that you have something that would require surgery, but it's not, it's not 100%. And some people, you know, have been told they need surgery but don't really need it. Uh, so I don't know the exact rate, but I would say it's about 50-50. Yeah. And, you know, we among the residents, it's something we joke about, but... Uh, one of your patients in particular, but we, we've heard it from a few of them, somehow they converged on this idea. They call you the fixer because they say that they, they've seen so many doctors and no one would help them. No one would take them seriously and listen to their problems. And then, oh, Dr. Deutsch, he fixed me. That's what they say. And so we, we jokingly call you the, the, the fixer when some of these patients come from clinic. And so I, I think that really speaks to what you're saying, where you, you take the time to let the patient come in meet with them, speak with them, uh, instead of just looking at the chart, looking at the imaging, and making an early call based on that. Um, so I, I wonder, in that mindset, when you see a patient in clinic, because I imagine that there's as many ways as there are surgeons for a clinic interaction in a spine clinic, what's, what's your practice like when a patient comes in, they have films, they don't, you walk into the room, has one of your nurse practitioners already done a physical exam and told you about that? Do you examine the patient? And if so, how focused or how general is that? What's the full interaction like if you're running a relatively high volume clinic? I imagine you're pressed for time. Well, uh, you know, uh, we have fellows that oftentimes see the patients and then maybe tell me about it, then we go in. Sometimes we have nurse practitioners or PAs see them. You know, I don't think that's a 
tremendously effective use of a nurse practitioner or physician assistant. Mm. I mean, I would prefer that they see their own patient in clinic, and then if there is something that needs my attention, then they would call me, for example. But maybe if it's something that's not something that I would need to do, then I don't really need to see them. So I think that model works better. So sometimes I do go in and see the patient and no one has seen them. Uh, You know, we, we do all of them, basically, but... I don't think, you know, I think that me just going in and seeing them works just as well as having the nurse see them before. Um, and, um, you know, the, the interaction is uh, the patients want you to spend time with them. So it's very important. You, you got to spend some time with them. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I sit down because the patients kind of see you kind of run in and walk in. They kind of feel like you're about to run away and they get nervous. So and then I think the exam, it's, it's a key part I mean, one thing is the exam is important in terms of, um, you know, you, a lot of times you pick up stuff that you don't really think that you're going to pick up. And, you know, there's some parts of the exam, like watching a person walk and just, uh, you know, observation and and, uh, and things like that, interaction with family members, that is very important. And then there's also the idea of laying on hands, like the healer. So right. patients expect that. And... They are very comforted by that. And, you know, when you are seeing a patient, you're kind of establishing a relationship with them. It's not just, you know, you're just like a, uh, talking to them, but they have to trust you. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's very important that they trust you and kind of believe what you're saying and, and are on the same page as you. And if they're not, like, if there's no connection, then it's going to be difficult to, to do surgeries uh, and to establish a doctor-patient relationship. And, you know, in a competitive market like Chicago or other big cities, maybe they've seen other doctors. They have other opinions or could get other opinions. And the question is, is do they trust you over someone else? And, you know, part of that obviously is talking to them and being able to relate to them. And different patients need different amount of time or relations mm-hmm. depending on their level of education and trust. So, you know, th- those things are important to kind of figure out. Like if someone is... Um, you know, needs a lot of details. You maybe give it to them. Some some people are like, well, whatever you say, doctor, and right. you know that you need to speak to them in a, in a different kind of tone. Uh, so you got to pick all those things up. So um, you know, if, if a nurse practitioner sees someone, and then you don't spend much time with them, they may not develop that level of trust with you, and they're going to go somewhere else and have surgery with someone that they trust more. So I think that the interaction of the patient is is key, and. Um, you know, I also have gotten some guidance from Dr. Berger, who's, he's an ortho guy here, mm-hmm. and uh, he's world famous in doing hips and knees and has operated in former presidents. And, um, you know, he, he's kind of told me the same thing, that you've got to create this trust. And yeah. he likes to talk to the patients about their personal life and what they do and the job they do. And I think that that's key because, um, you know, that, that helps put patients at ease. I just talked to a patient yesterday, and I didn't realize I had operated him twenty years ago, and it came back to see me for like an adjacent level wow. problem. Yeah. So he's got like a, he makes uh, zambonis for people's backyard ice rinks. <laughs> so um, you know, I asked all those him, backyard ice rinks. Yeah. So yeah. I didn't know this. So now he's giving me a zamboni. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Do you have an ice rink? No, but I'm gonna get one. Now you gotta get one, right? <laughs> yeah. that, that's a good business that's model. Right. Yeah, I guess I guess there's enough people with ice rinks in their backyards if he's in business. He showed me pictures. They got like these LED lights underneath the ice. It looks amazing. Oh yeah, wow! Yeah. Okay, uh, I'll have to see some pictures. But 
So that, I mean, that in and of itself is a perfect example of what you're talking about, where 20 years later, you've got a returning patient, you could say even a repeat customer, so to speak, uh, because spine affords that kind of longitudinal relationship by the very nature of the disease, right? These are all chronic degenerative processes that we're not fixing, we're kind of staving off. Um, I think it's really interesting that you you mentioned the laying on of hands, uh, not only in that kind of deep symbolic physician quote unquote role, Dr. Wang and I often talk about the role of physician as almost like a priestly class traditionally and historically, but to also just help garner that rapport and that relationship with with the patients that you meet, not only for them to agree to have surgery with you, but I think there's a lot of pretty compelling data that if something goes wrong and there is, God forbid, some complication, then some of the main predictors in likelihood of lawsuit and patient satisfaction and all these subjective outcomes for the patient, what actually happens after the complication is much more related to the relationship with the surgeon and the honesty from the surgeon and and all these things that you seem to be investing in right out of the get-go. Um, I do think it's also interesting, some of the things you focus on when we were talking about the exam, because again, when, when you're only focused on the inpatient side of any surgical discipline, particularly neurosurgery, we see people as consults, we see people as post-op, they're always in bed. They're always sitting in bed and we do a physical exam. And we've talked about this before. Um, when I was an intern, I remember you, you gave me a, a really good a pearl that five out of five on exam laying in bed is not the same thing as being able to stand up and walk around. And, and so that angle you take when you're in the clinic and you said, oh, what's the relationship like with the family for their support structure? Can they stand up and walk around? Um, I can see that from an outpatient setting where somebody's in the community and choosing to come to the hospital for a surgery, that can be so much more important than you know, what the specific is it four minus or four plus in a single motor group on exam. How, I guess in the course of your career, how long did it take or were you conscious of a process where you started shifting from the resident inpatient mindset to the attending elective outpatient clinical mindset? Was that a process you can think back and you remember, you know, developing that mindset as you advanced in your career or did it just come organically? Well, I think um, as a resident, we did do some clinic and it was helpful, yeah. uh, but it was mainly in terms of, I was a resident at Mount Sinai, worked with uh, Cal Post and he, he was very charismatic and really connected the patients well. And you know, he would say certain phrases and then I would adopt those phrases too. Like, you know, looking at the MRI, like a loaf of bread and things yeah. like that. And I would, I would adopt those things uh, but, you know, at the time when I was a resident, spine surgery was like an, a new thing where it only fellowships had just started and, you know, no one really knew uh, the medical decision making involvement. It was a black box. Right. And it was just completely, that was one of the reasons I went into it is like, I have no, you know, this doesn't make any sense. And who, you know, what's happening here? Um, it was just like, uh, it was just a mystery, basically. Yeah. So then um, in fellowship, you know, we spent more time, and I did fellowship at Emory with Reg Hayde, who's now the president of WNS, and he's like one of the best teachers, I think, in neurosurgery and maybe in any kind of medical field. And, you know, I had the, the privilege of working with him, and so I, I really learned from him. And one of the things is we did a lot of clinic. Um, so I also 
saw his interaction with patients and it, you know that that influenced me a lot as well um and um also the decision making etc and then you know once we got got to clinic i mean i remember when i first started for example like my documentation was terrible like mm. my exam would be like one line i mean that would be my <laughs> my note for like a new patient yeah so you know i over time i learned that that was bad right <laughs> so I, you know, I developed that, and then now, now was it? Yeah. Did you primarily learn that lesson for billing purposes, and you couldn't code for things, or because that patient would come back, and you'd see them again months or years later, and you go, "Oh, I have no idea what 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 happened last time I saw this person," or both? Well, that's one of the things that I I learned from Reg Hade is that he's like, you're you know, you're seeing the patient, you're spending time, you're making a decision, you're not going to remember any of this yeah. next month for a couple of months when you do the surgery, so you have to, you know, write that down. Mm -hmm. And he also would have like a red magic marker and write on the films, um, you know, pictures and stuff like what he was gonna do. Okay. So then he, he would, you know, when the surgery came and you'd be like, okay, this is what my plan was. And then, I mean, I basically did the same thing in a more digital way where I, I actually, this is one thing I do in clinic that maybe other people don't, is that I take a screenshot of like the image, MRI, and then I mark it up on screen, like I write numbers and I draw yeah. arrows, and then I put it in the chart, I yeah. paste it in the chart, and then that is gonna be a reminder for me like what I was thinking at the time. Right. Because a lot of time, um, I'm, I'm seeing patients in clinic and I make a decision and when I see them, six months later, they're like on the operating room table, I'm like, what the heck was I thinking? Like right. scheduling the surgery. But then, you know, at the time I had more benefit of talking to them and I know that they have radiculopathy and, and this, that, but you know, so, so it really is helpful to have these images in the chart that I can refer to. And, uh, you know, I learned that to some degree from, from Reg Hade. Um, the, he used to mark up with a crayon, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, so that, that's helpful. Uh, yeah, documentation is key. You know, I didn't realize uh, in my training how important it is. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of um, nonsense to like, you know, a lot of times we've had patients, I mean, I'm sorry, residents who finish and they go into practice and they're like, I did a microdiscectomy and the patient still has complaints of pain. What am I doing wrong? I'm like, well, that's just sort of normal. You do a perfect you gotta, surgery. You gotta talk to them different, right? Well, it's, it's the thing is, is you do a perfect surgery and the patient still have some complaints. You know, it's, it's the nature of being that's a patient. Fine, There's man. always some complaints. Yeah. So it doesn't mean, and this is one other thing I learned too, is when I first started out, I was afraid to ask patients, are you better? Because I mm. I didn't want to hear that they, they're not, so I just was right. afraid to ask. But now it's like the main thing I do is like, did the surgery help you? Right. Because uh, the patients always complain, I have a little numbness here, or a little pain there. Uh, but I'm like, do you feel better? Did the surgery help you? And then, you know, if they say, yeah, some, a lot of times they're like, yeah, I still have some numbness here. And I'm like, did the surgeon help you? Did the surgery help you? And, and they're like, uh, oh yeah, I'm 100% better. I'm, this is, uh, so then, you know, you have to you have to be able to ask that and kind of figure it out. And the other thing that I also learned is to really analyze. And I think that, like, if you're a sports team, you go over like film from the game and kind yeah. of figure out what we did wrong. So a lot of surgeons don't do that. They're like, you know, as a surgeon, you have a lot of confidence, and you're like, you don't want to admit any mistakes, and that's like the thing you don't want to do. So I. Anytime I see a patient and I see them back, I look back at the initial film. I'm like, what, what went wrong? Why are they still having pain? 
why did the surgery not help? Or if it did help, like, why did it help? Um, and I'm like, wow, this person's doing fantastic. Like, why did the surgery help so much? Right. So I think that like, post, sort of post-game analysis really helps you become better. Well, that's really interesting that, that you focus so much on not just the granular details and the objective findings, but just, hey, do you feel better? Hey, did it help? And that, that's a great transition to the last thing I want to ask you about. But I do want to point out first, it's really interesting how you, you save these screenshots and you say it serves as a visual cue. Because I think uh, me personally, anyone who trains or has trained at Rush uh, in your operating rooms has experienced this where you've got the patient ready, Dr. Deutsch walks in, the films are pulled up, and you walk up and you look at the MRI and you go, oh, I remember this guy. He's got a crazy sister and he's, oh, he's an agent for this person. And it's as soon as you see the films, it's, oh, I remember this lady. And then you, you, you get right to it. So that's interesting that you kind of plant those seeds for yourself with the, the visual cue. But I guess to, to bring this conversation home, the last thing I wanted to ask you about was satisfaction. And that's uh, perfect that you were just talking about the focus on just, hey, do you feel better instead of all the granular details? Uh, the last time we talked about this off air, obviously, you were telling me that there's kind of a stark difference in your satisfaction scores between the patients that actually get surgery, who tend to be very happy, and the patients you see in clinic who, I think as is true of most spine surgeons, mostly tend to not get booked for surgery, though as you say, they're, they're coming expecting surgery, and so there are lower satisfaction scores in clinic. I think, as we said, that's probably a pretty common experience, however good the screening process is. So rather than getting into the nitty gritty of patient satisfaction scores and what the field as a whole looks like, we actually did an episode with Dan Resnick early in the uh, uh, season one of our show talking about satisfaction scores and spine. I'll point our listeners back to that. But more so, I'd like to ask you in your practice, when you're seeing patients in clinic and you realize they don't need surgery or you're not going to offer them a surgery, but you know they really want it, what's your approach to saying no? That's It's almost like the giving bad news in medicine talk, but it's a little bit different because you're not laying a diagnosis on them. You're saying, I'm not going to do for you what you want me to do. What, what's your approach to that? Well, you know, I just developed over time. I would, you know, I'll, I'll, tell, the, I'll tell you what the wrong approach is, which is what I started out with. Yeah. I would tell the patient, your MRI looks great. You don't need surgery. There's nothing wrong with you. Uh, you should be happy. <laughs> and then the, the patients were extremely angry. Yeah, they they would, loved that. They would call like the police. I mean, they yeah. were like, uh, there's nothing person. better than someone with severe symptoms and complaints, and you just tell them there's nothing wrong with yeah. you. Yeah, they, they're so angry. And uh, <laughs> so I learned not to do that. Um, now, sometimes I'm like, your MRI looks not that bad. And, you know, there's, I, I, a lot of times I try to reassure them, like, you're not going to be paralyzed. You don't have to worry. There's a lot of times, patient comes in normal MRI. They're like, I'm worried I'm going to be in a wheelchair. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, you're not going to be paralyzed. You don't have to worry. You know, stay active, do things. Um, so, um, you know, there's, you know, patients come to you, and sometimes they do want surgery, and a lot of times they do, and most of the time, I'm trying to persuade people not to have surgery. Yeah. More than trying to convince them to have surgery. So, I mean, a lot of times. I'm like, well, I obviously try to maximize non-operative care and uh, um, follow up with different doctors, physiatrists, and do therapy, and you know, possibly get injections, things like that. 
and I, I don't I don't say to them like you're never going to have surgery stuff like that. Right. And then um, sometimes there's really no treatment that I can even think of. <laughs> and then you know sometimes I will order a test, uh, just be like we need to do more testing to figure out what's wrong. And then so you know we we're kind of evaluated based on these press gainy scores. Yeah. And I, I'm not I'm not good at gaming the system, and some people are, but. You know, one possibility is if it if you push it out far enough in the future to tell them they don't need surgery, past your appointment date, then it won't negatively reflect on your Prescani score. Like they've already filled it out, whatever yeah. it is, and um, so you know, so I'm trying to get them not to be so dissatisfied so early. I mean, right. eventually, I mean, it's it's easier to break up with someone long distance kind of thing. <laughs> So, um, you know, hopefully the nurse can call him back and say, like, look, you're just not a candidate for surgery or, or whatever. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I I have, like, relatively low um, scores because, you know, you know, a lot of the patients in general will give someone 9.5 when 100, you know, no matter what. Yeah. So, uh, but if you average in a zero with that, that really lowers your score. Sure. And if you see a patient and they're like, drove for three hours and they have this chronic pain you're like you, you know there's nothing we can do to help you they, they'll give you like a zero and that will yeah. average in with the 99 that you've gotten and you, you know you'll have a bad score so it's just the, the fact of and the other thing JP that we didn't really discuss that much but in spine surgery we're really involved in the socioeconomic fabric of society yeah. and uh, meaning people for example, may not want to go to work, or maybe they can't go to work. And yeah. I, I kind of see this often. You get like someone who's 55 and they're in construction and they can't do the stuff that a younger person can do. And, you know, how does that manifest? They can't say I'm old and obese and I can't do it. They say like my back hurts and I can't do it. Right. So then, and then they want a note from the doctor saying that their back hurts and they can't work. And, you know, they, they, there's lawsuits. And if you don't give people what they want, you know, you're like, I can't write this letter that you're off work. Uh, then they're also very angry at you too. Yeah. That doesn't help your satisfaction scores. So, I mean, this doesn't really exist in the world of brain tumors where there's not so much secondary gain. And again, there's not this socioeconomic issue that's prevalent in spine surgery. But, you know, a lot of the patients we see, they don't want surgery. They don't want, they, they just want to be off work. They want to establish facts for the, you know, personal injury case from being rear-ended. So, you know, we have to deal a lot with that, too, and that could be a whole podcast by itself. <laughs> yes, well, you know what? Uh, booked. We'll have you back on to discuss that. That'll be a fun one. Uh, but I know you've got surgery to get to, and we need to respect your time today. So, as I said, this, this has been a conversation a long time coming. Uh, so, Dr. Deutsch, thank you so much for coming on the show today. The Fixer himself, finally on the podcast. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you, JP. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.